and then letting them apply it. So when they would read something, check in and then take them to a job site, you know, one of the real estate buildings, show them the books. Don't be afraid to talk about money. That's one of the things I see a lot of people struggle with with kids and establish boundaries. There's things that you talk about to stay inside your four walls and there's those things that you can share with others. But treat them as you would want to be treated as a preteen teenager. Mm -hmm. Abigail just got her learner's permit. Dangerous. (laughs) (laughs) But it's definitely a different mindset than when you're going into an 11-year-old and you need to recognize it. And I try to remind myself, how did I feel at that, you know, 14, 15 year old? I, I thought I was a lot older than I was. <laughs> so <laughs> yes. you treat them that way, it's, it really sticks. But some of the side effects of doing this is amazing. It's like my son, who's kind of middle of the pack on the reading in class, moved to the top of his classes last year. Wow. And just stretching that reading ability. So there's been so many benefits beyond the business. Just by getting them involved personally, professionally, it's huge. And it goes a little uh, you like gotta stop, collaborate, and listen. Julie's here with a brand new invention. This podcast grabs a hold of you tightly. Push the play button, listen to it daily and nightly. Will it ever stop? Yo, I don't know. Push subscribe and let's go. Woo! Hi, friends, and welcome back to this episode of the podcast. When I tell you that I have pages of notes from this episode, that is not an exaggeration. I have written down so many quotes. I have one of them hanging now in my office. Just as a reminder, I have been lucky enough to know Matt since high school. I'm not going to age myself and tell you how long ago that was, but it's a long time. And Matt's had a career over 20 years He's worked in oil and gas, mining, and real estate development across the United States, working with clients to understand their unique needs and project controls, risk management, and project assurance. He is now working as a consultant. He started his own business. And I want you to know that I value your time so much. And there are so many gems in this episode. Whether you're interested in becoming a consultant or hiring one, We talk about how he brought his kids and family into his business. We talk about what failure looks like and how to learn from it. We talk about how to figure out how to price yourself. We even talk about how to figure out what your unique skills and talents are. And that doesn't just apply to starting a consulting business. It could apply to anything in your life. So I encourage you to listen to this episode and I would love it if you would send me a message after and tell me what your favorite part is, because I'm curious if your favorite moments are some of mine as well. Now let's get to the show. So Matt, welcome to the podcast today. I'm so, so excited to have you and you're one of my first episodes. So welcome. All right. Well, privilege. (laughs) (laughs) I would love from your point of view, how we connected and how we know each other you know, yeah. the journey here. <laughs> no, absolutely. It's crazy because I was moving all over the place, right? And then I ended up in Anchorage, Alaska in high school and crossed paths with you there. And we had some mutual friends and then ended up working together at McDonald's, which was crazy to think how long ago it is now, but that's where we were. <laughs> Listen, don't age me. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> and then from there, I mean, Went our separate ways for a while, and then you and Cheryl, my wife, ended up going to college at the same time, the same place. So you know more about me than I do at times because you know her. (laughs) (laughs) But then, you know, coming back full circle, finding myself following through Facebook and seeing what you're doing, and then finding myself asking some of the questions that you're addressing, and then getting to circle back up. It's been a lot of fun, and it's crazy to think about how long it's been. Oh man, it's been such a privilege. I really have fond memories of those days back at McDonald's. You know, you just, you're working hard, but you're also having fun with your friends and dealing with some of the crazy stuff that comes working in service industry. Yeah, it's a carefree work environment back then too. I mean, you really (laughs) don't care what people think. You're just having a good time and making a paycheck. 
So I brought you on today because I felt like your story about how you got into consulting and then what your business has looked like and then how it's evolved would be really inspiring and also educational for people. And from both sides for people looking to hire consultants, what that is like, and then people also looking to jump into consulting. I think you can speak really eloquently to both both sides. So I'm wondering if you could tell us about your journey into, well, perhaps maybe start with what you were doing before and then what made you transition into consulting? Sure. So, I mean, it goes all the way back to one getting married young, right? I mean, Cheryl and I were 19 when we got married and she was in college and it was going to come down to one of us needed to pay the bills. And when I was looking around, I started off as a finished cabinet maker and ended up working at that shop. But it was a union shop. And back then, it was the best job you could get in the little town we were in, in northeast Missouri. And there was a big layoff. And there was about four of us that were 20 less and everyone else was 40 plus. And in that union environment, there was no work left. So it was a leap of faith, jumped in the truck. Anything that we could fit in the truck went, anything that didn't, didn't, and took off and went back up to Alaska and started out as a janitor's assistant on a job site. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people thought I was crazy for taking the job, but looking back on it, it really did set a fundamental basis for where I'm at now. And it's the appreciation of all the crafts and the interdependencies that happen. And then if you work hard, no matter what level you're at, true journeyman in their trade appreciate work so as a janitor's assistant here i am cleaning brake shacks making coffee doing the things that go but everybody in their trade was willing to show me what they did trying to give me a shot to get out of that role and then the janitor that i actually reported to they always say you don't get any lower than i did on the totem pole cleaning the porta can but it's <laughs> that the old man that was teaching me was a basically a retired pipe fitter and he told me then always chase the money. And I didn't know what it meant at the time, but what he was talking about wasn't my paycheck. It was everything you do, you need to think about how it ties back to the business bottom line. So as that started to click and I went into scaffolding and carpentry and helping with pipe and helping with structural and ended up in materials at one point due to a a bed shortage, flew all that we'd moved back to Missouri and flew back up and found out there was no beds. So there was no job. So I asked the lady at the port if I could store my toolbox and everything there because Cheryl and I had just moved, spent everything we had. And it was, I had to go find a job to even get a plane ticket to go home. And she said, do you want a job here at the port helping with materials? You know, carpentry, that sounds great. Did that. And then from there, she came out one day and said, I need somebody that knows a computer and we're giving a raise. And it was 30 degrees and raining at the Anchorage port and yeah, that sounds great. (laughs) (laughs) But moving into the office, it was fascinating because everything you assume from in the field, when you get in the office, looking completely different. You start to see the other side of the fence, but don't lose sight of where you came from. And so I was starting to consult then, but didn't recognize it. And it was bridging that gap between why does the office do what they do and why does the field see it the way they do? So it became a mission of mine at that stage in materials. Everything I do in this office needs to benefit the field somehow. And not from my perspective, from their perspective. So moving through the materials game, did that for a couple of years, but then had the opportunity to go as an estimator and learned how to picture a job in your head and put a dollar and man hours to it of what it's going to take to build them. And I had an awesome project manager named Ken Jacoby and Jacoby came to me and said okay I know you don't want this next step but you got to learn costs and I went oh man because it it all (laughs) sounded like accounting I didn't want to do accounting and he said no before you can do anything else you got to understand how this ties back to the forecast and I said okay trusting him I did it and then some scheduling software came along that we brought in a third-party consultant to come in and help with planning and it tickled my interest in Primavera. So I called Cheryl and said, I know we don't have a ton of money. Abigail, our daughter had just been born and said, but I'm going to drop a couple grand on this training class because I think it'll pay off in the long run. She's going, okay, you think, all right. <laughs> <laughs> so I flew home from Alaska on R&R, but I had a one week 
time off. It wasn't a long trip, but it was a five day training course. And I drove back two and a half each way, two and a half hours every day and took this course. I go back to the slope and the day after I arrived, Jacoby comes over and says, Hey, did you take that scheduling course you're talking about? I said, yeah. He said, well, good deal because we just got told we have to have a scheduler. So I'll give you a raise and you're it. Wow. So in the first five days I was back, the raise offset the cost I dropped on the training. And Cheryl's just like, you crazy. (laughs) (laughs) But from there, I got picked up by a client, actually. And I ended up going direct for a while and working those things. We moved back up to Alaska. We remembered why we left Alaska for us. (laughs) (laughs) And then the Bach and Boom happened. And there was so much opportunity down there. And it was a wild, wild west show. I mean, things were going everywhere. It was great money, but there was a lot of risk involved with being in the Bakken at the time. People were transitioning to a more stable way, but it was still pretty wild. So I flew down and no one else in the company, because it was a merger between two, an acquisition. And I was asked to facilitate the cutover. And I walk into a, literally a trailer in a trailer park is what these guys had set up for an office. And there was a table up that had seen these big wigs, as they put it, show up on the job site, tell them how it's done. And it was, here's your whiteboard. Tell us how you're going to help us. Mm-hmm. That was my introduction to the team. And then started talking to them and they realized I was coming at it from a different angle. It wasn't the top down thou shalt approach. Because it was, help me understand where you're at. I can't tell you how to fix it if I don't even understand. And one of the guys in that trailer actually became kind of like a mentee for the next several years. And now a business partner and some real estate things we got going on the side. But got through the balking craziness and the slowdowns happened with the oil crash. And I went to work for a large consulting firm. And what I found there was a lot of good fundamentals but with some underlying differences of opinion on how you should consult and how you should approach clients. I was working and I was going to make a swap to a new position. And one of the clients we were supporting actually asked if I'd be interested in starting my own company. Mm-hmm. And if I would, they'd give me a guaranteed job on day one. So in two weeks, Cheryl and I jumped in, figured out how to set up an LLC, get everything up and going. And went to work as my own person, just like I was as a consultant under a big umbrella, but that's how Roundtable Solutions happened. And the name Roundtable Solutions means a lot to me. One of the closest mentors I had in scheduling project controls named Jay, he always said it's kind of like the Knights of the Roundtable coming into Concord because we'd have to go in and analyze and rip these things apart. And so I got to steal the name Roundtable and put it in there and make it part of the whole journey and got to tell him about it, which has been great because it puts a smile on his face. To me, the consulting games, it's just about problem solving and being open to the things that can come up as you see them and don't expect anything. Don't assume you know what the answer is before understanding the problem. I wonder, just on a personal note, if people that you worked with, they generally had experience also working in the field or once you moved to the office, was it pretty much like they came from a different path for the most part? It's really a mix. I mean, some of them, there were some that made the transition and in the project controls consulting arena, you'll find a lot on the cost side comes from more of the academic background, a lot of the accounting, financial, but on the planner side and the scheduling, the best planners and schedule I work with come from the field side. Because it's just putting on paper what you know how to do. If you don't know how to do it, it's really hard to plan it. So it was a really good mix for me to be around. But most of the interesting part is most of the planners didn't have the background in cost and estimating to support the plan. Mm-hmm. And to this day, I'm thankful Jacoby made me do it. <laughs> right. Because it, it was made me do it. <laughs> but it was, it, it really helped connect those dots and understand following Everything you put on paper is tied to somebody's dollar. It's yours. It's the clients. It's a it, an owner, whoever it may be. But when you put those down, think it all the way through because somebody's got to pay for it. Right. And I don't know if people understand from what you've shared that you were working 
on shift work, when you come from Alaska or maybe other um, states that are like heavy in oil and gas, you understand, but there's a definitely a culture here where people are working two weeks on, two weeks off, or a month on, a month off, or, you know, they work on these modified schedules. So how long were you working in that type of shift work away from your family? And while some of this, like your family was in a totally different state, so you were commuting, you know, across the country to go to work every day. Yeah, in the beginning, I was working ridiculously long shifts that most people wouldn't in a lot of cases that are not even allowed anymore. Yeah. We were in a huge crunch project. I was young, full of energy. Cheryl was in college and I needed a money up. And so we'd be gone for 12 to 16 weeks and I'd come home for five days Yeah, and go do it again. But that wasn't long term, that part of it. But that shifts, typically I was six weeks on, one or two off. And I did that from 2000 until 2011. And both my kids were born during that period. I, I say that's why I've stayed married. If you stay gone, most <laughs> of for long. So. <laughs> and what has that looked like then coming home, right? Because not only did you transition to owning your own business, but it was a complete lifestyle overhaul for you guys. Oh, completely. Because even when I first started, I was traveling you know, over to Denver from here home in Missouri and getting away. And I always had that gypsy bug in me to, to get out of here. But then this coronavirus, I mean, it changed everything. And now I've been gone one week in the last year and a half. And <laughs> it's amazing to me. And what was really interesting in the dynamics of us is technology helps huge because I can still stay connected, consult, do all the things I need to do. But the family dynamics of it, you know, everyone thought I would struggle the most with kind of being locked down and being home. But honestly, my wife and son, the two that thought my daughter and I would struggle, it was the opposite because we just saw it as a new challenge. And how do we stay busy and keep your mind traveling even if you're stuck? But it's, it definitely been trying at times, no denying that, because when you're used to hotels and that peace and quiet and you're home every day and you love them to death, and you're glad to be here. But at the same time, it's like, does it ever stop? <laughs> and trying to hard to explain to people that sometimes you miss 18 hours a day. They look at, look at you a little crazy. Yeah. I think early on in my business journey, I had this track in my head because sort of in this industry, there's this story or narrative of you can build your business to a point and then bring your partner home. And I was putting a lot of pressure on myself to build to a level where I could bring my husband home. And I had a coach and she was like, would he even want to be home? And I was like, you know what? He would not only drive me crazy, he would drive himself crazy. Sometimes it's those questions that it snap you out of a loop of, you know, like thinking, <laughs> it's like, never mind. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> well, me, I just found myself filling the schedule, right? Because I mean, I started Roundtable, it'll be two years ago this August. And then on top of that, started an investment company, started the real estate development. So the last year and a half, if I got stir crazy or bored, it's just like, pile more on there. We'll get there. Right. And the awesome part about that is I've been able to bring the family on board. You know, Cheryl's now a full-time employee for Roundtable in the back office, and both the kids are helping and getting them involved on the real estate side and on the Roundtable book, starting them on that journey. Jacoby stuck me on. You're going to learn <laughs> you don't want one. <laughs> That's one of the things I really, there's a lot of questions I have for you, but one of the things I wanted to talk about is how you have brought your family into the business. And I don't know if you want to share, like maybe not the ages of your kids, but the general sort of age that they're at and then how that conversation happened and what that's looked like. Cause I imagine you're having them try things out and seeing if you like it or not. How did you decide what to share with them and what to sort of test the waters on with them? Was it based on their level of interest? Was it based on what you knew their strengths to be? It really was kind of a mix. And just like consulting, I try to look at people the same way, right? Put yourself in their place, put yourself in their shoes. And when I was reading books, looking at different online courses, taking different courses, it was my son, who was 12 or 11 at the time, going, okay, what would resonate with him, with who he is and how he sees the world? 
versus my daughter, who's more of a bookworm and enjoys just reading for reading. My son, I mean, you can tie him up and force feeding the book and it may or may not stick, but <laughs> it's, it's with him, the audiobooks. He's a lot like me in that. Like, keep me moving. And the audiobooks will do well with. But the, going back to the basics, you know, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, that's the one I started both of them out on just to understand why we were doing this and how we were trying to get out of that rat race and set you up to be passive in the long run. Yeah. Even if you're putting in the hours now and do it now while dad will give you less hours than anybody else. Right. So <laughs> yeah. that was big. And then with Cheryl, it really came down to time freedom. Mm-hmm. What made sense to get her involved in that still allowed flexibility because when it started COVID wasn't a thing. So it was, the thought was travel, do all those things you want to do wherever you're going to be. So the book work made sense to have her jump in and start helping on that aspect which was outside of her comfort zone. She doesn't love it, but it was more of becoming a coordinator between us and the accountants and the different things. Mm-hmm. But with the kids, it was really the rich dad, poor dad. And then the miracle morning, by yeah. Hal, a great book just for a mindset, but then introducing one a little bit more. It's like Grant Cardone and his robust style. Mm-hmm. Loves it. That's if it's his personality, but it's not so much for my daughter. And so recognizing it and then letting them apply it. So when they would read something, check in and then take them to a job site, you know, one of the real estate buildings, show them the books. Don't be afraid to talk about money. That's one of the things I see a lot of people struggle with with kids and establish boundaries. There's things that you talk about to stay inside your four walls and there's those things that you can share with others, but treat them as you would want to be treated as a preteen teenager. Mm-hmm. Abigail just got her learner's permit. Which Dangerous. Is, <laughs> <laughs> but it's definitely a different mindset than when you're going into an 11 year old and you need to recognize it. And I try to remind myself, how did I feel at that, you know, 14, 15 year old? I, I thought I was a lot older than I was. <laughs> so <laughs> yes. you treat them that way, it's, it really sticks. But some of the side effects of doing this it's amazing. It's like my son, who's kind of middle of the pack on the reading in class, moved to the top of his classes last year. Wow. And just stretching that reading ability. So there's been so many benefits beyond the business mm-hmm. just by getting them involved personally, professionally. It's huge. Did you guys talk about money before you started your own business or was that a normal conversation or did that transition after you started? It really transitioned because there was loose talks about it. But not in the way the accounts are set up on how taxes work. I mean, Cheryl just this week was going over how health insurance works and how you've got to do the risk analysis against your benefit plans. So, I mean, it's to a whole new level now on the business side. And a lot of it for me was also what did I struggle to understand and learn starting a business? Mm -hmm. That They hit that point. I don't want them to have those same struggles. Pass those lessons learned on how to get a good basis. Right. Definitely a lot more detail than it used to be. That's for sure. (laughs) Yeah. And their age, like they've gotten older. So probably that transition. That's part of it. And I think part of it too, is the education, right? Mm -hmm. Before you get the fundamentals, you really can't talk about the details. Yeah. So allowing them to go through that in the cash flow game, that's by the rich report ed series. Mm -hmm. We've got that here at the house. And it's something we pick up and dust off and run through a couple of times. And it's fun to watch them learn the different scenarios. And my daughter will tell you, kids are expensive. I don't think I want them. (laughs) (laughs) But it's watching them draw those cards and go, oh, great. Now what? And it's good because that's life. Life lessons. It's what people say that they always wish they would have learned in school, like how to balance your checkbook, but you're taking it to a whole nother level. It's like really from the ground up, how to grow your business. So I know that people are probably really interested in a couple of things. I think we're all inherently curious about what a day in the life is for a consultant. And so do your days vary significantly? Do they look pretty much the same when you get up to start your day to the end of it? What does that look like for you? 
so much about a snicker because you have a plan, right? I'm a planner. That's my role. That's my primary background. And they usually go out the window about 8.03 <laughs> because you got a client that has something come up hot for them and, and they're calling saying, hey, we need help on this. Well, a priority to your client. I had another supervisor that used to say, what interests my boss fascinates me. It's kind of the same approach when you're a consultant. What interests the client fascinates you. So you, you've got to balance priorities. But the biggest thing for me is understanding what your forecast looks like. Because if you're not looking 30 days, 90 days, a year out on a business, it'll sneak up on you in a hurry. Mm-hmm. Mondays are big to me. Waking up, kind of resetting, making sure I have a game plan. Calendars are set, knowing where they're at understanding the current client needs, and then doing those check-ins. So for instance, I'm supporting three different clients now, and starting on Monday, you check in. You know, has anything come up over the weekend that we need to be aware of and addressing right away? Mm -hmm. And it could reset the whole week. And then the other side is knowing when to walk away. And that's a lot of things I don't hear consultants talk about. Yeah. Because you're going to run into those situations where they don't want to change. They think they do, but they don't want to change. And they're going to tie your name to that lack of change. And you've got to recognize those exit points. And they're just as crucial as the optimization points where you get to see the upsell or anything that's going on. But either way you go, those things stick with you. So you've got to recognize it. But a day for me really starts out with looking at that calendar. You know, what is the plan of attack for day? Getting that prioritization done. See where you have synergies where you can pull different meetings into a consolidated meeting. I I think anyone that does a lot of meetings understands death by a thousand meetings. And so if you can get it cut down to two or three, because you can consolidate and really focus in on the attack, the clients really appreciate the approach. But beyond that, it's just being nimble, recognizing what's in front of you and not letting anything be too big. Don't let it overwhelm you. I love that. So it sounds like your days and your weeks have a rhythm, but that you don't, maybe days look different from one another based on probably the client you're working with, the projects, but what you spoke to about knowing when to leave. I think that applies to a lot of businesses, certainly for me as a service provider, but I know anybody who's working with clients, there becomes a point where you start to feel like that nudge and then something's off. And if you don't take action on it and don't have those conversations, things can spiral really quickly, especially the higher up you're working, right? The closer you're working to the management or the owner, I feel like things can go south very quickly. So do you have any advice for people what to look for or what to think about when they're starting to feel like something's not aligned anymore? Yeah. One of the biggest things is listen to what's going on around you. Because it's been my experience when you start hearing the word quit a lot from your peers, that's the last step before you quit. When someone started to verbalize the words, they've already come to the conclusion. They just haven't accepted it yet. Yeah. And so if you find it happening inside of yourself, you're on that path. And to me, it really comes down to a fork in the road. Do you want to reset and figure out what was causing it and see if you can address that? Or do you want to come to terms with it and find the most graceful exit plan you can to leave a bridge unburnt and create an opportunity for yourself? I think it's important to reflect on how you got to that point, just so you don't fall into the same trap over and over. I've seen too many times in my career, in all aspects, and not in personal and business, that that comfort level that you have, you accept quickly without recognizing it typically leads to the same result. So you got to find that kind of uncomfortable start point that may put you down a different avenue. But to do that, you have to understand what caused that to start. Yeah. The graceful part to me is one of the big things is it's easy to quit in a passion, right? Mm -hmm. I don't see you. It's hard to do it gracefully with dignity and respect And the easiest approach I've found is that putting yourself in their shoes approach. So you're going to leave them a person down. 
maybe a, a specific skill that you bring to the table. If you're a consultant, the advice role that they've been looking for. If you can do it while thinking about who you could pair them up with, offering candidates that may be a better fit, they really appreciate the honest approach. Even if they don't take the advice that you give or reach out to those people, just the fact that you're saying, I think this person might really be a better fit goes such a long ways. And it's seen with a lot more respectful light as you leave. Definitely. I I really think that's super valuable advice. And it's something that everybody's going to come to as you work with clients, as you're in a business, we all have to look for those points where we have been comfortable or not. And we just, we know we need to pivot and move on. Or we know respectfully, like if we're working with somebody and we're not feeling that alignment anymore, what's best for them and what's best for us is usually going to be the exact same thing, right? They're, they're needing somebody who's a better fit for what they're doing. Right. Well, and so many times I've found if, if you find yourself feeling like they need to go or you need to go, they're feeling it too. So you might as well get, get ahead of it. Yeah, that's so true. So now we've talked about sort of what a day in the life is. Can you tell us how we know how you got your first client and started doing that? But then as you grew the business, was it a concern right away? Where am I going to find other clients or has that happened organically? So if you could tell us like where you found clients, how you've thought about who you wanted to work with as your business has grown. Absolutely. So the number one thing that I kind of self-reflected on was even when I was working for the other consulting firm, clients were calling and asking for my advice, not the company's advice, not the big firm's advice. And as I stepped out on my own, I really leaned into that is going, okay, there was people calling me before I was calling them. So what are the type of situations I want to get myself into? Of course, I had this first client. It was a great pay and it was easy to think this could be it. But for me, it actually became a game of how can I leverage getting a paid education? So I have a skill set to offer to different clients, but there's a lot of sectors of business I don't know a lot about, but want to know more. And the number one for me was real estate. And I reached out to a local real estate developer here that does development and assisted living and said, this is what I do. And would you be interested in working together? And they actually took me up on it. And started helping them with project management process and procedures and looking at projects in a different light, more structured. Because in oil and gas, it is very mature in a lot of their structures and formats and templates versus real estate. It's more of that entrepreneurial, let's just get it. So it's it was fun to bridge that gap. But I had an interest in real estate. So I started to see this as an avenue of what do I want to find out more? And how can I offer a benefit to them to get me in the door? So now I've broken off into solar technology, solar distribution, broken into utilities. I'm actually in talks right now with a transportation outfit. So it's whatever piques my interest, I start to leverage that. And then I make those phone calls to find out where their pinch points are. And I think Most consulting firms go in with, this is their approach, and this is what I can promise you. And to me, I equate it to a diet. You can watch the commercial for the diet pill. It'll cure it in a second. And there's those who teach you about a lifestyle change. A good consultant, in my mind, is the ones that start to implement cultural change to desired outcome, not the quick fix. I'm going to give you this report, and you're going to know everything you ever wanted to know. And so to do that, you have to understand where that culture is at before you can start pitching solutions. So sales calls to me look and feel a lot different than what I see or hear and have had as a client in the past, because I really want to understand where you're at. And sometimes that equates to me saying, I'm not the person that can help you, but I do know a couple others and start recommending. And twice now I've ended up getting business later on down the road. From having that conversation, I wasn't the right fit at the time, but six months after they fixed some of the other things, then I was the right fit to help them. So it's fun to me to have that really organic, honest conversation and picking your timing is key because in project consulting, month in is huge. 
Well, the week before month in is when the anxiety sets in for everyone involved. So that is a prime time to have a phone call with what's on your mind. What are the areas you're struggling with? Well, I don't think we're struggling here. Man, I, could you tell me about how you got there? And it's fun to hear them kind of take the defenses down because you can tell them authentically, hey, 80 plus percent of the phone calls I make, somebody's got a complaint. You're one of the few I'm calling that says you don't have a pinch point in your company. I'm really curious about how you got there. And then they start telling you all about what's going on. And all of a sudden, it's surprising how many times an opportunity falls out of it. We've got all of this solved and we just shut down doing risk analysis because we weren't getting any benefit. Well, that's something I actually can help you with. And you walk them through how you can close that gap. But you got to get that guarded approach because you're a salesman at that point. Nobody wants to go to the salesman. So you've got to get them to come past that and understand you genuinely there to help and not upsell. You want to try to close those gaps for them. Yeah. So it's all about your intention and how you're approaching it. What would you share with people who maybe aren't natural salespeople, especially I think coming from corporate, you get a job, you get an application, you do your interview. And if you're not in the sales department, you're just like showing up to do your job. So thinking about that transition, I think a lot of people are very intimidated by especially cold pitching. I don't know if you, what you, you would consider what you do cold pitching, but sales in general. And I'm wondering if you have something to share with those people about what that can look like. The most important thing you just said was it's your intention when you show up. You're not showing up with the intention to sell them. You're intending to help them, whatever that ends up looking like. But whether it be nerves or not knowing who to reach out to, how do you decide who you're going to approach? How do you like know who to reach out to? That sort of thing. Sure. So for me, in it can be it can look so many different ways. And it's finding what you're comfortable selling is such a big part of it because if you don't believe in yourself, no one's going to believe you either. So what part of your skill set do you feel comfortable telling someone about and having confidence in your ability to deliver the product? And it can be an actual item or it can be the services rendered. But once you nail that down and you start to say, I'm going to do my first cold pitch, I'm going to go opposite of probably what you hear from everyone else and say, find an absolute stranger on LinkedIn and connect with them. It is so intimidating when they say, go cold pitch your friends or your family, because you're going to hear about it. They're going to tell you and they're probably (laughs) going to remind you for a few weeks. So it is so much more comfortable to find someone. If you're in Alaska or Missouri, find someone in New York. Find somebody in California, find somebody that's completely out of your network and just reach out and do that on LinkedIn, Facebook channels. You can do it through emails or phone calls. Just make that first step. And you'd be surprised if you ended in, I'm new to cold calling. I'm not trying to pressure and really love to hear any feedback on how I could approach you better to have this conversation, how much you'll get back. and. That unknown aspect really disappears when that person you're never going to see or hear from. And I do encourage to stay away from your prime targets. So I see a lot of them, you know, they have this big account in their mind and their first first cold calls or contacts are to those prime candidates. Highly recommend pick a small business that's probably feeling some of the same anxiety you're feeling about this. They're just starting to get phone calls from salesmen and salespeople like you. That's a great place to start. And they're definitely more apt to give you some honest feedback. Yeah. So when I hire for businesses, it's something they do a lot. And it's amazing. You can have 50 applicants and maybe one or two will write back if they didn't get the position and ask, what could I have done better? And those people I know hands down are going to be the, some of the most successful people, period, because it's hard to listen to feedback about ourselves and our approach because we might think, oh, I did pretty good on that one. <laughs> right. <laughs> and sometimes just surviving, it feels like I did really well. So, <laughs> right. 
it never hurts to ask a question, right? Because sometimes people just might not have the time to to respond. But I have a rule for myself that if anybody asks that question, I take the time to respond because it's such a scary ask. And the fact that they're willing to do it, not only listen to the response, but just ask the question, I always make time to respond to those inquiries personally. And, and to add on to that, I'd say always read it with a positive mind because you're going to get feedback that can feel hurtful and it can feel personal. But think about the fact that somebody did take the time and give you that response. And it's an opportunity to learn and grow from. And you've got to take it from that and don't let it beat you down. The other thing in consulting to remember is it's a 90% fail rate, right? So you've got to learn to hear the word no and be okay with it. You've got to learn that you're not interested. You're not the right fit. And understand none of that is about you personally. It's just not the right fit right now for the situation. But they tell you 98% of the contacts you do even make is not going to turn into business. So it's a game by volume. You've got to reach out and reach out a lot. And you're going to lose a lot more than you win. And if you look at it that way, you're going to feel like a loser at some point. And you've got to recognize every loss contact was a gained experience. And so if you leverage the gained experience, it doesn't feel like a loss. So on that same note, if you're thinking about clients that you've had to step away from and how you've refined your process and who you want to work with and who you want to work for, how has that evolved and what does that look like now? Yeah, the fun part for me now is I look at things not only for the clients that I want to work for, but the people that I want to work with, which really changed the mindset of what I was going to consult. So if I find an individual that I really enjoy working with, they're very talented, but I don't have that client to put that skill with, well, that's now what I'm going to go find. So to me, it's more about building that team you want to grow something and do business with clients are everywhere teams that you want to work with that's tough to find so to me i kind of reverse engineer the aspect of the old saying of butts in seat right so the consulting firm if you can get a blank seat and you can put a body in it and make a profit you're doing great that's not for me i want to bring quality people and quality skills and offer that to the market And I don't want to be the one that's got 4,000 employees that I don't know any of their names. There's plenty of those out there. I want to be the tactical team that comes in because most of my phone calls come when you're already in a bind, right? If somebody's reaching out to me, a project is upside down, they need help. You're not going to get the ideal case scenario. So you've got to be able to be flexible, understand the situation, and it takes personality to fit that situation. So when I find those, I find clients and the absolute belief that I will. Yeah. That's the other part of that. Yeah. So do you have anything that you wish your clients knew before they reached out to you? Do you wish, for example, like people reached out sooner or do you think there's education that needs to happen in some industries about what consultants can do for them and the power of that? Or I always just wonder because I think there'll be two types of people that listen to this podcast, right? People that want to transition into being consultants and people who want to, or think they might need to hire a consultant and how do they know they're ready? How do they show up and be a really great client, you know, to the best of their ability? Yeah. And some of it is ask yourself where you're at. If you are in a crisis situation of a project, recognize no consultant is going to come in with the pixie dust and fix it overnight. I don't care who they are because especially in the project controls, because when you talk about cost schedule, risk and estimating, our outputs are driven by your inputs. So if you don't have the inputs available, the outputs aren't going to reflect that information. It, It doesn't exist. I mean, in the ideal state, you'd always find that client that brand new, doesn't have any cultural bias. They don't have any set ways and they want to set it up and get it going right. If I ever find one of those, I'll call you and let you know because like finding the unicorn. But (laughs) for now, it's really setting your expectations to align with 
realistic results that are going to progressively improve. And so I talk to them a lot about understanding where the change needs to occur. Most clients expect from our side of the business that you put software in place, you get these templates and everything's fixed. Most of the problem comes from behavior and cultural awareness and prioritization of management. The driver behind it to me that's interesting is middle management is the one that usually calls for project controls with upper management pressure. But the expectations from upper management doesn't align with what they're making available to middle management. So clients really need to sit down and ask themselves, are we aligned at all levels of our organization to make this shift? If we're not ready to make that shift, what steps could we take to get us there and define those progress elements? Think about those KPIs or key performance index measures that will lay out a successful or unsuccessful effort of a consultant. Because if you go from where you're at to perfect solution with no way to measure in between, you're feeling like it's failing every day. That's really powerful. I can think of that in terms of when I work with clients in the online business management side. I think it's a similar way because a lot of times people will reach out to you, everything's on fire, or they are launching like next week. And at that point, like you said, for launches and stuff, it's too late. You can't bring someone on that close to the game. But also thinking about when you start coming in and tinkering with things, you're it's like you're pulling everything out of the closet. And so, yeah, the middle feels very messy. And like you said, if there's not that way to measure performance in between or measure the expectations and the performance on both sides, then it could feel like you're just making a bigger mess of everything without, you know, keeping the end goal in mind. So I think that it's powerful and it it's like all levels of business when you're bringing people on. Absolutely. And it's even a good rule of thumb for your employees, especially when you're bringing somebody new into a new industry or someone new from college or school into the industry. It's setting those milestones that they can hit along the way because success builds success. So if if they feel like they're always coming up short because all you've said is senior level designer in this case, well, they're not going to get those incremental wins to build on. And so setting that up with consultants and employees is such a big deal. Yeah. I love that so much. If somebody is thinking about hiring a consultant or somebody's thinking about pricing, what is somebody looking for in terms of price and level? Like, is there a range of prices that people are offering? And so if a company's hiring, you know, sometimes we have a natural bias to say like the person who's higher priced is the one that has the more experience or is more valuable. But what if somebody needs just a small amount of work done? Is it worth at that point hiring a consultant either for less hours or a lower rate? Or should they wait until they're at a point where they can bring someone on in a more, I don't want to say full-time, but like in a more consistent basis? To me, it goes around your level of definition of scope. So expect to pay more for more ambiguity. So You can be a senior level planner or senior level cost engineer, but if this company already has defined process procedure, and I just want you to follow this and get us a cost report, you shouldn't be paying top end consultancy prices. If you're saying, I don't really know how to get where I want. I don't know the pieces that go into what I want. That's where you should be looking at more of those senior level pricing schemes because you're asking them not only to bring their expertise, but to teach you their expertise. Mm-hmm. Because you don't want a full-time employee. You're looking for somebody to come in here and set this up, teach you the way, and send you on out to do it on your own and let the consultant move on to the next opportunity. So it's really about your intent and your level of understanding along with the available information. One of my frustrations I run into with clients is if they want all this process and procedure, Do they make people and resources available to me to help set that up? Or are they wanting me really to go off in a closet, solve it, come back, tell them what it is and teach them all? That's two different price points completely. 
because now you're asking me to give you all of my trade secrets and 21 years of experience of doing this and hand it to you. Yeah. I mean, think back to what you paid for college for four, right? Five, and that's what it should be worth then, right? I don't think anybody wants to pay that for a three month effort, but (laughs) it really is. If you put it in that perspective, it, it makes sense on where the fees should align. I love that. And it's it's so perfect. If you were mentoring somebody and they wanted to start out in consulting, how would you advise them? They think about how to price their offer and how they're showing up. And I know that it could vary a lot by what industry they're in and who they want to work with. But if you had to give them some advice, if somebody came to you and said, I want to start as a consultant tomorrow, how should I think about how to price my service? What would you say? So glass doors is a great way to start getting a feel for your market and your industry. So for instance, in my industry, the price points $120 difference between where I'm at. So when you, you've got to compare it to the market you're going into. The other thing you have to consider is all of the costs behind the scenes. Where I see a lot of consultants fail is they made 30 bucks an hour working for X So they're going to start their own consultancy firm and they're going to charge 40 to cover their cost. Do the buildup, figure out what your real cost is going in and make sure you don't set yourself up to fail financially because doing web design, doing what I do where I've got to have a lot of different software platforms and consulting to multiple clients adds cost. So look at your health insurance, look at your business insurance, look at the lawyer fees, leverage what it's going to take because, you know, a plug to like LegalZoom, LegalZoom has been great for somebody starting out. I don't have to have a dedicated attorney. I pay a flat monthly fee and it's always there if I need it and they can offer the advice. So leverage those co-op type environments to try to keep the cost down. But my father-in-law, who's an accountant, was blown away that we went in with no debt. But it was understanding what to leverage, how to leverage, and keeping the overhead down to a minimum and let the business grow into an overhead. Don't start with it if you can avoid it. But get your basis built because health insurance is a big one that people overlook that you've got to have. And that number varies individual to individual so greatly. Definitely. It's super solid advice. And there's shiny object syndrome when it comes to all the softwares and all the tools that we can use to help us in business and also programs, courses, trainings to take. Do you have thoughts about if you're talking to clients or if you're talking to people that are in their own business, how do you think about what trainings to invest in? Or how do you advise your clients about what trainings to invest in? Because that's a big one for people. They just, they keep putting money out and maybe not looking at the return on what that's going to be. Well, on any credential I ever think about taking, the first thing I do is go to indeed.com and put that credential in the search. And the, where that comes from is like AACE, the credited for training and project controls. But then put in PMP, project management professional. I may get 60,000 results on a job search for PMP and 10 for AACE. Where should I be putting my effort into? If everybody's looking for this credential, it's a great way to check and find out what you should invest your money into. Mm-hmm. But the next side of that is the payback. So if I'm going to invest in this software, what is the market willing to pay for access to that software? If I'm planning to work 80% of the year, then it must break even at that 80%. If I only want to work 60%, it needs to break even at that 60%. Don't try to roll the cost of the software too far forward, because if you have a down month, if you have a down quarter, it can sink you. Yeah. So me personally, I have over $20,000 in different softwares for all these clients, and you've got to sit back and factor in. Okay, if my long-term goal is to work three months a year and that's all I want to do, I better be charging a fee that offsets it or I need to be shedding the the software cost. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just really looking at the numbers, something that's, you know, only like 10 people have the certification or 10% of the people you're saying, maybe that's not so valuable. Or do you ever look at that and say, 
that's a skill that not a lot of people have. Is there a way to differentiate between those two things? Like this will be more valuable because not very many people have the skill versus it's just people aren't using it. So nobody really cares to get that certification. Yeah. And and my approach is to look at those postings because if I want to be a construction hygienist or industrial hygienist, go look at all the postings and see what they're asking for. And if you've got this incredibly unique cert, find out, call them. Hey, I've been looking at your posting and I was considering getting X cert. Would that help me in this opportunity at all if I went and pursued that? Most HR and resource people are going to let you know if that would up your potential or not. Yeah. And it's a great way to check. And you'd be surprised how often that can lead to an opportunity too, because you're showing a person that's willing and eager to learn. And you may become the consultant to fill that position. I love it. I really feel like we could talk for hours. It's these conversations that I feel so lucky that we have off of the podcast that there's so much wisdom and things I want to share. I think, you know, maybe someday if you're willing, I would love to do a part two, but I also really want to be respectful of your time because I know your time is super valuable and I'm so grateful you spent it with me. I'm wondering if there's anything that you think of that you want to share either for people that are coming up in the business or for clients thinking about hiring for this final thoughts that you'd want to leave them with or anything you'd want to share. The big thing I want everybody to think about is the value you bring without realizing it. So I challenge anybody listening for the next 30 days, write down the questions you're asked and see if there's a theme. If you're thinking about getting into consulting, and you're the one they always come to about a weld, or they come to you about this spreadsheet, or they come to you about organizing their pantry. Find out what that skill set is that everyone else sees in you that maybe you're not recognizing. And questions are the number one way to find it. So if you just take 30 days and really sit down, okay, I'm getting hit by this all the time. And I'd really love to have my own consultancy. See if you can build something around that. Because typically what people ask you to do is something they see passion in you when you do do it. And it's, it's an awakening when you kind of can come to the epiphany of business around this. This is such an opportunity to run with. How can I make this happen? When you have an epiphany on this, it's such a big moment to realize that people see this passion and you may not be aware of it. So you can build this opportunity and build this experience that you've been longing for and not knowing where to go with it. You can run to the end of the rainbow on that. I love it. That is gold right there. That is the highlight of all the highlights on this show. Just really helping people see what their gifts are and giving them a structure and how to do it. Because it's just like when I ask people to do a time study, it seems like at the time, I don't want to track my time, you know, for the next three days or five days, it feels very daunting. I think in some ways people might shy away from, I don't want to track, or they might track for a couple of days and then set it aside. But that work is where the power comes from and your next steps come from really organically. Like that's how, you know, when people say, I don't know how to find my passion. Like that is how you can tune in and find your passion in a very, like, that's like, you just gave them the map to do that. And it's fun. It is fun when you look back and see what it really tells you, because you thought you had it figured out. You don't. (laughs) And it's, it's fun to find out what others perception of your skill set is. And I I challenge the clients out there that are looking for the consultant, reverse the role. Who's the person or group that pops into your mind when you keep having running up against this issue? And don't be afraid to call that consultancy or call that person and ask who they'd recommend. It's just reversing it. Right. Like this is my set of problems. And do you think that most people in your industry would be as willing as you are to show up and share those resources? You have to be careful, not going to lie. I mean, some are going to tell you they can. And what I find is most of the time, those aren't the ones that pop in the front of your brain. Those are the ones you're trying to justify bringing in. So it's usually for me, it's like, I'm, I want to get into this business. Old man Jay's done this for a lot of years. I bet he knows somebody I can call. So I call Jay or I call Alan. So it's that person, not necessarily that firm. You know, in those people that you trust most in your business and in your life, reach out to them. 
if this was your situation, who would you call? Mm-hmm. Who would you get involved? And building that from a place of trust makes you more open to the consultancy. You're not going in as quite as skeptical when they were recommended by someone you hold in high regard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're more open to the potential solutions and the feedback. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> So if people want to reach out and connect with you, um, have a conversation, we'll have the information in the show notes for the podcast, but is there any resources or things you'd like to share? The big one for me, if you want to get it, I've got the webpage up and going, it's roundtablesol.com. And for all those in construction, you can get the snicker out of the SOL part, but it is short for solutions. (laughs) (laughs) But that's, that's the easiest way to get hold of us and, if you need, you can look me up. I'm on LinkedIn, Facebook, and all the other typical social places you can find people. I love it. I thank you so, so much. This has just been such a joy to get to spend more time with you. And I'm really proud of being able to have this conversation and be a platform where I could share your genius with the rest of the world. Well, I appreciate it. I appreciate the opportunity and it'd be fun to do it again. Oh man, I would love that. I feel like we could do a whole episode on, uh, there's so many things, building a business, building a business with kids, finding flow in your business and learning how to trust your instinct as you grow. All of those will be super valuable. So if you guys want another episode with Matt, send me a message, send Matt a message, let us know because, and let us know which topic that you'd be most interested in hearing first, because I think this could be like a whole series for sure. Sounds fun. Now, if you guys are still here at the end of this hour long episode, you are my ride or die for sure. And I'd love to ask as a new podcast, if you consider rating and reviewing the show, those ratings and reviews make a huge impact in helping other people be able to find the content that they're looking for and for us being able to share. So we'd be so grateful if you would take the time. See you in the next episode.